On today's episode, Anna shares the gut-wrenching survival story of the Chowchilla school bus kidnapping. Welcome to Crime Bar. So, um, Ashley and I, well, heavy on the air quotes, are doing a juice cleanse this week. And I think I failed after 20, was it 20 minutes? I think I lost it, 20, 30. Ashley's been following it and she has melted into the couch <laughs> just from pure exhaustion. Yeah, I don't think I'm doing it right though. I mean, <laughs> I think I'm following the rules and then, but I also don't think I am and I. But you don't feel good. I don't feel I good. I can see it in your eyes. And I I don't like the idea of laying down as I record because I feel like you can hear when someone is laying down. Yeah. I don't care. You sound relaxed as all heck. I had a BLT for lunch. So <laughs> <laughs> juice cleanse. Very successful. Um, well, I'm going to wake you up with a very um, chilling, disturbing, um, but it's a survival story. So you have that to look forward to. So uplifting to some extent. You at one point might have a smile on your face, but maybe not. Can't promise you that. <laughs> okay. Today I am covering one of the largest kidnappings in U.S. history. It is the Chowchilla bus kidnappings. And Chowchilla is tough for me to say. Why? Because <laughs> it reminds me of Chinchilla. Oh. <laughs> and I had like this really, really strong desire to own a Chinchilla for like the majority of my life. Really? Oh my God. I've, I mean, I had them when I was little, but I want one now. And like their little hands, when they get frustrated, they go like this to their heads where they scoop their bangs forward Aww. out of frustration. And like they're, they're known for being neurotic. And I just feel like... You think you need more of that in your life? I just feel like if anything, we'd look at each other and be like, I get it. Anyways, um, <laughs> back to this very disturbing kidnapping. Frank Edward Ray was born in La Grande, California on February 26th, 1921 makes him a Pisces yeah we like him though okay yeah cool. so positive yeah. Pisces his first name is Frank but every article that I read refers to him as Ed so that's just what we're going to call him for the all duration right. of this all right Ed I see you he grew up in the town of Chowchilla he graduated from Chowchilla High and then he got a job as a bus driver for the school district so he's just okay, born so and he's raised got Chowchilla in his, in his blood. blood he's Chowchilla proud he had this job. Um, he loved his job um, as a bus driver. He had it for 40 years. Everyone knew him. Everyone loved him. He was like that friendly, humble guy that you would just trust your kids with. You know mm. that they're safe. He's yeah. punctual. Just a good dude. July 15th, 1976 started out like every other day. Ed was doing his usual drop-offs after summer school. And those happened around 4 p.m. On this particular day, there had been a field trip. So the kids got to go to the Chowchilla Fairgrounds swimming pool. And when I read that, I got like secondhand excitement for the kids just because you know how friggin' awesome that would be going to like the, the city pool with all your best friends instead oh of gosh, summer school. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I wouldn't have been able to sleep the night before. 
So he had 26 students aboard. Uh, their ages ranged from fi- uh, from five to 14. Oh, so big, very massive range. A lot of variety. These kids loved him. And even though they were loud and rambunctious, he was just very patient and very kind. And that that day especially, they were just on one after being in the pool. Oh, yeah. And he was just letting them let him letting them ride that high. Party bus. Yeah, that day was no exception. So he's driving down a country road in Madera County when a 1971 Dodge van suddenly blocks the road where the bus is headed. So he's forced to stop the bus um, and was immediately confronted with a very terrifying sight. There were three men armed with guns with nylon stockings covering their faces. Ugh, I hate that look. I hate everything about that. I saw a movie recently where they did it wrong and you could still see their faces through it. And I was like, what's the point of that? <laughs> but in this case, they were successful. Oh, okay. Larry Park, who was like a six-year-old that was on the bus, said he caught sight of the men with the nylon stockings over his face and he said it was like looking at death oh the a six-year-old said that oh little larry (laughs) little larry the windows on the van had all been painted black and the interior was reinforced with paneling ed when he saw this and he saw the men holding the guns he tried to get around the van somehow but it was a country road he was unable to fit and on top of that it was very intimidating these men banging on the pass like on the driver's side window and this one guy that's wearing overalls comes up to the driver's side window and he says would you open the door please he opens the door two of the men entered the bus one held a gun to ed while the other man took over the bus and started driving He held a rifle on his lap. The third man followed in the van that they had blocked the road with. He was holding a revolver. For the duration of the drive, everyone was completely silent. An article by Vox.com said that it was so calm inside that bus that it felt violent. The only sounds came from Ed, who was telling the children to just sit down and to be quiet. I think he was terrified and he just wanted them to comply he was I mean, he's speaking. the only adult he's there, the only basically, adult for these children he's responsible so. for 26 kids yeah. he was speaking in this like very frightened and harsh tone that when the kids heard that they just knew that this was there was something really not right happening because he was always like this like jolly old guy yeah. the three men took ed and the 19 girls and the seven boys to a somewhat hidden spot that was along the chowchilla river it was this shallow branch of the river called the Berenda Slough. One of the little girls named Jennifer Brown recalled that they drove the van up to the bus door and then the children had to jump one by one into the back of the van. And they did this so that there wouldn't be any footprints. Oh. And it's also just, it's like there's something about like the this idea is of so them. calculated. It's so, it's like kind of like rounding cattle. Like they just don't want to give the kids any opportunity to be able to run as well. Yeah. yeah. So once the first van was full, they shut it up and drove away. And then they filled another van that was hidden at the meeting spot by the river. 12 children went into one van and then 14 children and Ed went into the other. The vans were pitch black and the walls had been reinforced with wood paneling. One of the children recalled As a six-year-old, the only way that I can describe this darkness is that it was trying to get me. Oh, chills. Yeah, that just gave me chills. Mm -hmm. 
Ed and the children were driven around for 11 hours in pitch black. 11 hours without food, water, and 26 children that are frightened and do not understand what is going to happen to them. Oh, and like one adult that also feels the same way. Yeah. I... I get motion sickness. Like if I stand up too yeah. fast, like I'm so sensitive. I would have been vomiting everywhere just by the, the, the motion. What was happening? Dark. <laughs> but on top of that, there's no windows. There's no ventilation. Everything's painted black and it's July. It's so disorienting. It's just hot and stuffy. They're all sweating. They're so uncomfortable. Yeah. And some of the older kids started singing songs to lighten the mood for like the other little ones. Oh. And they sang songs like if you're happy and you know it and get down tonight and like the combo of like those like upbeat songs and then like crying children singing and like clapping along is so disturbing and so eerie and the fact that they had to do something that was like so pure yeah to cope with something that like full-grown adults were doing to them yeah is just disgusting beyond belief jennifer brown who was nine years old at the time said A few of my little friends that are five and six, they came over and started laying on me and crying. And I told them to be brave because it was going to be all right. And like when you think of a nine-year-old, that's a baby. Mm -hmm. So a baby comforting other smaller babies. Mm -hmm. The vans finally park around 3.30 a.m. on July 16th. Ed is the first person to get out of the van and the men shut the door behind him. He is immediately directed to take his pants and shoes off. One of the men hands him a flashlight and he is directed to crawl down a ladder that is in the ground. (laughs) It's just going into a hole. Oh, no. They repeat the same thing with the children. They open the door, grab a child, and then close the van door again. So the kids that are inside have no idea what's going on in the outside. For all they know, they're being killed or... So they're opening, grabbing one, closing. One at a time. Then, oh my Picking them off. So it just builds anticipation of like the worst kind. The place where they parked was surrounded by nothing but dirt. And the kids said that when they would get out of the van, they couldn't tell if they were at like the, d- the desert or the beach. All they saw were piles of dirt and no one to be found. Like it was just in the middle of nowhere. Jennifer, who's like the nine-year-old that I quoted up there a second ago, she recalled that she kept scooting herself as far back into the van as possible because she was convinced that maybe if she hid in the darkness, the men would not snatch her next. So she was just pushing her little body as far back into the corner. One of the oldest kids, Michael Marshall, was only 14 years old at the time. He said, I just remember the kids got a hold of me and were holding on to me and just scared out of their, you know, we were all just scared out of our wits. He and a five-year-old named Monica were the last two kids in the van. She was clinging to him in fear. And even though Michael is a child himself, he immediately felt this overwhelming protectiveness over this little girl. And Michael was terrified to let her go when the men came for her next. He recalled, I had to take her hands from mine and rip and tear them apart, say it would be okay and go with them and leave her. That was hard. The kids are forced to strip off all their clothing as well. As they go down the ladder one by one, they gave their names like some sort of roll call. And then those names were written down on like this old discarded jack-in-the-box bag. When Monica finally climbed down the ladder, Michael was so relieved that they weren't going to be separated and that everyone was alive. Everyone was just like scanning this like weird underground. It looked kind of like a moving truck that had been buried, but they couldn't tell because it was so dark. Yeah. 
but so they they kind of counted and figured out that no one had been killed in the process of being removed. So both vans of children had went into now one been in consolidated okay. into one spot. Gotcha. So these human beings, these insane human beings, had buried a moving truck underneath the ground and then stocked it up with like a few mattresses and then a bare minimum amount of food. The next thing that they know, the kidnappers lift the ladders out of the van and then toss one single roll of toilet paper down into the hole. The only thing they said was, we will be back for you. The hole was then covered. They had been buried 12 feet underground. Meanwhile, the people of Chowchilla are losing their minds. It doesn't take long for everyone to be calling one another. Like their kids don't show up at home. Even like 15 minutes late is like unheard of for Ed. He was so prompt, so punctual. Yeah. And immediately people are assuming the worst. So they get into their cars and immediately start driving around searching, going up and down every single street, trying to find, get their eyes on this bus. Search parties are immediately formed. People are going through orchards, holding flashlights, doing everything they can to find the 26 missing children and the bus driver, Ed. Around 6.30 p.m., just two hours after the kidnapping took place, the sheriff's department had planes flying overhead to try to find this bus that seemingly just vanished into thin air. Like, they got on it right away. A couple hours later, a police sergeant was able to locate the abandoned school bus in a drainage ditch, but there was obviously no children, so there was no clues, no footprints, anything. Sheriff Ed Bates gathered all of the parents at the local fire station. He informed them that he had made a call to the FBI because he was convinced that their children were victims of a bizarre, massive kidnapping. And he was correct. Wow. His instincts were right. At one point, he was like, I know what I'm talking about. I have a master's. (laughs) He was like a funny dude. Um, Both President Gerald Ford and California Governor Jerry Brown heard about the missing children right away. And they both gave law enforcement agencies blank checks to do whatever it took to find them and bring them home. Everyone was doing everything they possibly could, and they wasted absolutely no time doing it. The FBI completely booked out every single hotel in the, in the town. Like, every room was filled with the FBI. And the town was filled with TV crews and reporters, and this was all happening within a matter of hours. Back at the underground prison that is made from a moving van, Ed is terrified by the conditions. The side of the van and the ceiling are already warping under the weight of the dirt. And like they've only, they haven't been there for very long and they can see things just denting and dust and dirt just starting to pour in. Oh, I, I, this is. The claustrophobia is your night. It's your nightmare. I was going to say, I don't want to be like a downer, but this is so hard for me to listen to. And it just keeps getting worse. And it's also, I think the fact that it's like a group project in the way that you have a bunch of children that you need to cooperate and follow along and listen and keep calm. There is one adult, the pressure of that, everything about this is a nightmare. So everything's warping. The dirt's already just starting to like envelop them. I mean, they're already enveloped by it. They're buried 12 feet underground. Ed knew that it was only a matter of time for the ceiling to just completely cave in and to make matters worse. And like, I know he's a child. And I, as I was reading this next sentence, I was like, damn it, you little kid. But he doesn't know better. He's freaking out. But he starts kicking at the blocks in the van. And like the blocks were holding up these four by four pillars they were like the structure that was keeping the ceiling from collapsing. And this child was just going at the support system of the ceiling. 
And so that was what was causing things to start to basically fold in on themselves. And everyone is freaking out trying to restrain this kid because they can see dirt and dust flowing in. I think he was just like obviously spiraling. Um, So once they had been forced inside of this van, the steel plate was placed on top of the entrance. And they obviously didn't know this, but on top of that, two 100 pound tractor batteries were put on top of that steel plate. So it's like over 200 pounds of weight that they would have to then lift off if they had any, if they even had access or an opportunity to escape. Yeah. And suffocation is another element that they obviously have to be concerned about because there's only two air shafts and they were like these measly little hoses that ran like they were just like kind of drilled a hole, plopped through and then ran up like through the dirt, this 12 feet of dirt. Like a literal garden hose? It was like a hose. Wow. So they had basically carved holes where the wheels were for the moving van. Okay. Um, and made them into toilets. So these 26 children and one adult having to defecate in one little hole and everything is completely dark. I don't really understand like the, um, what is the point of creating a bathroom and providing food and all that stuff if obviously they're just trying to I mean I will obviously we'll get I, to that I'll get to the motive later oh okay um and I'll, I'll show you a picture in a second just so you can fully understand okay. how awful this is um but I want I just wanted to say quickly that the only food that they're given um couple couple bags of potato chips bread peanut butter I think like butter <laughs> and then water jugs like as if they wanted to butter their bread as they're sitting down there and then like I said, mattresses scattered around the floor. And here's the photo. Whoa. Isn't it? It's like, diff- for some reason, different than I was expecting. Yeah. When you said moving van. No, I guess it is like a moving van. But I guess it's like. I was picturing like a U-Haul. Like I was picturing something like that. But it's it's definitely more of like a big rig. Kind it's, of. It's, it's large. Yeah. It's and really I just, big. I felt bad saying that it was bigger than I expected it to be. Because <laughs> yeah. that makes it sound like it's nicer, but it's not. Well, it just seems when you think about burying that in the ground, I just picturing like a Impossible. passenger van seems insane. And yeah. then this looks like the size of a big rig. I mean, there's, let me see. That's hard One, work to get that under the ground. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. Just what's visible is 11 mattresses. And yeah. like some of them are stacked on each other, but it's like, that's a lot of yeah. It's, it's all just strange. It, yeah. Everything about it is strange. I have one more photo that you can see. You can see now here, the this is a picture of um, the beam, like how much the ceiling was collapsing in on itself. Oh my gosh. That is horrifying. Oof. Yeah. It looks like kind of like chicken coop wire grating yeah. that's lining everything as well. We'll and post like it all on Instagram. Yeah, and the way that it's bending, I feel like the metal, like the way it's bending just only exaggerates how much everything is collapsing in on itself. Yeah. There's obviously no way of knowing the exact temperatures at that time, but I did Google July weather in Chowchilla just so I could like try to understand what that would be like with minimal ventilation. And during that time of year, temperatures are generally in the high 90s. Yeah. So it's kind of like you're not allowed to leave your dog in the car when you go to the grocery store for even a couple of minutes. You're burying children underground in this condition in the middle of the summer. So health-wise, terrifying. They could barely breathe. They were sweating profusely. Everything would be completely silent. And then one child would start crying. And this would cause an eruption of tears from all of the children. Keeping everyone calm was close to impossible as every minute passed. Michael, who's the 14-year-old, said that he just kept thinking about the fact that he didn't get to say goodbye to his mom 
and that the thought of their last encounter brought tears to his eyes. He just couldn't wrap his head around the fact that like he couldn't say I love you, he couldn't say goodbye and like the worry that he was putting them through. He like later did an interview about how he would never be able to forgive these men simply because of the fact that his parents had to worry about him. Yeah. He's like such an empathetic kid. Yeah. And you said he was like 14. He's 14 at the time. It's like he wasn't even concerned about himself and you'll see that throughout the story. So the kids had been in the underground prison for only 12 hours and they had already finished the water and eaten all of the food. This is when the fans on the ventilators stopped working. No food, no air. And that is when they all knew that they were going to die. They might as well do everything that they possibly could to escape. Yeah. The driver, Ed, and 14-year-old Michael took the mattresses and stacked them on top of each other, directly underneath the manhole cover. Ed and Michael took turns pushing the cover. And remember that this thing weighs over 200 pounds. Ed is in his 50s. Michael is 14. They can barely reach. And doing like an overhead press like that. Yeah, pushing up. Is is is, insane. That's so much harder than just trying to like open a door. Dudes that work out constantly can barely chest press 200 pounds. Like that's remarkable. Yeah. Michael said that all of the children would like get together and start cheering him on and yell like, you can do it, Michael. You've got this, Mike. And like as he's pushing and they're alternating back and forth, back and forth with like all of the effort in their body, the kids stop and they say it moved. So they keep me chills. Oh yeah, they just give me chills. (laughs) I have so much hope for these kids. (laughs) Michael squeezed his body up through the hole and they, and he found that they had constructed a wooden box over it. And I'm like trying my best to be able to describe it. There's no photos of this box. I think it was kind of like they displaced kind of like a crate sort of thing that was like really, it was heavy. And I'm assuming the batteries were on top of that box. Okay. And he said that he, he was already exhausted and now he has to get through this other, this other whole thing. And he's slamming his fists and he's kicking the box. And no matter how exhausted he got, he just wouldn't quit. He didn't give up. And even though there was nothing he wanted more than to get out, he became like terrified by the possibility that the kidnappers very well could be standing right outside of that box holding guns. So he's ultimately just pushing himself into a a death trap. But he didn't give up. It didn't stop him. Suddenly, a sliver of sunlight creeps into the overwhelmingly dark van. Oh my gosh. One of the little boys said it was like little stars had filled the place, the way that the dust looked in the sunlight, just like the speckles floating, like the hope and everything. It makes you emotional. They all knew that they were going to get out and they were going to survive. This incredibly brave 14-year-old boy pops his head out of the hole first because he wanted to scan the area to make sure everything was clear before the other little children followed him out. All he saw were trees, mountains, and tons of dirt. At 8 p.m. on July 16th, the children and Ed safely escaped their prison. They were kept inside that ticking time bomb for 16 hours. And you know that must have felt like a week. 16 years. Yeah, absolutely. There were noises in the distance that kind of sounded like machinery or like large equipment. They couldn't figure out what it was. And of course, their fear was that these noises could be, you know, being caused by the kidnappers, but they knew that they had to risk it. So they ran towards the direction of the noises and they came upon excavators and men in hard hats. The men, he's like completely confused construction workers are like, who the hell are you guys? And they said that they were from Chowchilla and that they were lost. 
It turns out that they had been buried at a rock quarry in Livermore, California. Is it a quarry or quarry? <laughs> rock quarry. <laughs> I didn't even hear a difference in the way you just said the two. Quarry words. and quarry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not sure. It's like when Quarry. the girls hold up two light pink bottles of nail yeah. polish and like, which, which one should one? I do? <laughs> Livermore, California is located approximately 100 miles from Chowchilla. And so then in my head, I'm thinking, okay, they drove them from where they were kidnapped to this rock quarry for 11 hours. So they were just doing laps to kind of throw them off, I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm because that sure. should only take like two hours. Yeah, max with traffic. Yeah, The police were immediately called. As soon as they arrived, they took photos of each child before sending them to Santa Rita Rehabilitation Center. And that's a jail. <laughs> it was the only place that they could find um, to hold all of the children. So these poor kids pile onto a bus and see that they're being driven to a jail. And like, you're a kid, so you don't really understand what just happened. Like, did we do something wrong by, I, I would just assume when I see like the the wired fence and everything, they're not, they think that maybe they're being punished for like escaping or something. Mm -hmm. So that just added to, the trauma for them but when they arrived they were given apples and water and they were all examined by doctors for four hours they were questioned but unfortunately they couldn't give much information about the kidnappers because they're all young they're scared and the guys had pantyhose over their face so they there wasn't just anything really to go off of once the questioning was over they finally got to reunite with their families it had been close to 36 hours of hell at this point and like, I can't even imagine how overwhelmed they must have felt. It was a media frenzy and the kids and their families were being flooded with interview questions and attention. There were tons of interviews and excerpts, but I wanted to share a specific interaction between a CBS reporter and the nine-year-old Jennifer Brown. This is a reporter named Harold and he's with CBS News. And he asked her, how does it feel to be a big movie star? And she goes, I don't know. I've never been a movie star before. <laughs> <laughs> And he goes, for nine-year-old Jennifer Brown, the experience has allowed her to see, is, has allowed her to still see the world with compassion. Why do you suppose that they would do something like that, the kidnappers? And she goes, I don't know. They didn't have enough love. Oh. Even though the kids and Ed were home safe and sound, they still had no idea what evil humans did this. They still had to look for these assholes. So first step was to look at who even had access to the walk court. I don't like the combo of those words. The Wakwoi. The Wakwoi. The first step was to look at who even had access to the rock quarry. You did it. I did Good it. Job. I got through it without a speech impediment. In order to bury that moving container underground, completely undetected, you had to have access to the quarry. Yeah. I just hate that word more yeah. than many things. Yeah. They discovered that the son of the owner of the quarry had keys. His name was Frederick Newell Woods, and he was only 24 years old. After looking at surveillance footage of the quarry, they were able to place the three faces, Frederick Woods, James Schoenfield, and his younger brother, Richard. They were young, privileged assholes that were from very wealthy families in San Francisco. Just two days before the kidnapping, they had all been charged with grand theft auto, and they simply got off with a fine and probation. Whoa. They're white and rich. That's what happens. Yeah. After they were able to identify the three men, the evidence came very easy. Not only were all of the guns recovered, but there was a detailed document labeled plan at the top. These maniacs had planned this crime for over a year and a half in advance. A copy of the ransom note was even found. The letter stated that they wanted $5 million in exchange for the victim's safe return. But 
The kidnappers never even delivered the ransom note. I was going to say, you didn't say anything about that earlier. <laughs> oh, no, they couldn't get to it. The kidnappers tried calling the Chowchilla Police Department, but the phone lines were, they were jammed due to like the overwhelming amount of incoming calls at the time. So they were like, you know what? We're just going to give up and take a nap. We'll revisit this later. So by the time that they wake up from their nap, they saw in the news that the kids had been found, which was like hilarious to me. It's not funny, but it's like, they're like, I'm going to go to bed. How long is this nap? (laughs) Richard turned himself in and Fred and James fled the state. They were eventually arrested at the Canadian border and they all claimed that even though they came from wealth, they were in serious debt and they needed the money. James explained We needed multiple victims to get multiple millions, and we picked children because children are precious. The state would be willing to pay ransom for them, and they don't fight back. Gross. (laughs) I hate them. Sheriff Ed Bates believes that the brothers did it out of fear and persuasion. He thinks that Fred is a sociopath and a psychopath and that just out of manipulation, whatever. Regardless, they were sentenced to life in jail without the possibility of parole. Unfortunately, that sentence was adjusted and they were eventually given life in jail with the possibility of parole. The lawyers appealed that bodily harm was caused. Even though the state acknowledged that everything about what these men did was horrific, they technically couldn't convict them of bodily harm because there was no direct Oh, no one was technically harmed? Yeah, because there wasn't any sort of uh, violence technically to their bodies they couldn't even though in my opinion stripping with gun like stripping them down and taking their clothes off forcing them with guns down ladders not giving them food putting them in a situation that could have easily killed them from heat i was gonna say it would have resulted in bodily harm but because they got out in the nick of time these guys get parole because they escaped yeah yeah. oh yeah no i know (laughs) this news was very hard on the victims and they were outraged understandably so how long after did that happen? They were still children at the time of the appeal. So it wasn't like that long after. No, it was, but like the parents and the children were all yeah. very upset because every year when one of the kidnappers would be up for parole, the victims are then forced to deal with yeah. the unknown. Yeah. Because that happens like what, every seven years or so? I, I don't know how that works, but you know, every few years they're having to be triggered all over again with the possibility that these guys can just roam free. Yeah. All of the children had a long road ahead of them in regards to healing from the trauma, but they all seem to have something in common. They think Ed is a hero. They said he made them feel safe and he gave them hope that they would see their families again. And I was reading this one part of, um, I was reading this one article about how he wouldn't even let the kids swear. So like when the kids would like start swearing out of fear, or just like being really angry, he would say that he would be like, he'd tell their parents and that that is not tolerated in here. Aww. And that, that for some reason, the fact that he punished them for something so benign, the normalcy, the normalcy was very healthy for them. But on top of that, him implying that he would like tell on them when they got out, gave them hope that they would be able to see their parents again. Yeah. Ed went on to live a long life. And he passed away at the age of 91 in 2012. And everyone said that he was like treated like a local celebrity and he was treated like a hero. And he was like the media coverage and the interviews and all of that stuff was just like overwhelming Ed praise. But that he remained so humble and he never once thought of himself as a hero. And that is the incredible survival story of the Chowchilla kidnappings. That is pretty crazy. Well, nuts butts. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts, nuts butts is a good way to describe that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely nuts butts. <laughs> it gave me um, 
a ton of anxiety. Yeah. And I didn't want to be like, can we stop this? <laughs> because we have to Bye. do it. Let's make it real short. <laughs> but I'm out. I hated that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, okay. it's awful. The idea of your day starting with um, the most fun you've ever had at the local pool with all your friends singing along on the bus, being rambunctious little kids. Yep. Next thing you know, three men, pantyhose, guns, forcing you into a van. And I was reading that um, poor Ed had been up for over 24 hours at that point because I'd of just probably. having to wake up for the shift and everything. Yeah. So you're disoriented, you're scared to fall asleep. And the kids, they would go in and out of sleeping in the van and they would wake up and they would just still be there and then start crying all over again and having yeah. to realize that this was not a nightmare. Yeah. And one of the kids said that he would have he would have dreams as he was falling asleep. He would have dreams that he was being kidnapped and then he would have to, he'd wake up and realize that that was all a reality. Oh, poor <laughs> just baby. so horrifying. That whole thing is so scary. Yeah. The long-term trauma of that would be unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sure. So, yeah. On that note, have a great afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram patreon.com slash crime bar podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.